Good morning. Good to see you this morning. Hope you are ready to get into God's Word. Please turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, where we were reading just a moment ago. And we will be excited to look at Paul's writings here in the Word of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Over the past couple of Sunday mornings, we have embarked on a journey through this letter. It's an incredible letter. We spoke about that. It's a letter that deserves more attention than it gets. The earliest of Paul's letters, written in 50 AD, just 20 years. Think about that. Just 20 years after the ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. Paul's earliest letter. Now, we have looked at many things over the first two sermons in this series. We looked at the Apostle Paul and the missionary team of Silas and Timothy. We looked at Paul's desiring to retrace the steps of the first missionary journey. But Paul always has a desire to go to where the gospel has never been proclaimed, where the name of Jesus has never before been named. So Paul would have loved to have gone somewhere like Macedonia. And so when the Lord opened the door in the Macedonian call, Paul jumped at the opportunity. And Paul first went to Lystra, and we uh, know about his experiences there. Paul and Lystra had some initial success, but then ran into opposition. And that's kind of like a microcosm, if you will, of what happened on a larger scale throughout this mission. They would have initial success and then great opposition. And so the Apostle Paul sees this pattern recur. It happens as they leave Lystra, this leading city, if you will, of eastern Macedonia, and they go to Uh, What is the most important city of Macedonia, Thessalonica? It's the administrative hub of the Roman Empire in Macedonia. This is exactly the kind of city that Paul wants to go to. Paul has amazing initial success in Thessalonica. Uh, Goes in the synagogue, preaches on three consecutive Sabbath days. There are a number, uh, at least some, uh, Jews who believe, but there are many God-fearing Greeks who believe, and many leading women of the city also believe. And so we see here success. In fact, he had so much success there that the Jewish leaders opposed him. They kicked him out of the synagogue. The Jewish leaders aren't happy. Paul doesn't leave town. And so they start a riot in the city. So Paul deals with this sort of situation over and over again. Now, as we have seen in the first two sermons, there is kind of a a historical narrative here that is important. Luke gives us much of it in Acts. Paul leaves the city of Thessalonica after so short a time Three Sabbaths in the synagogue, maybe a week or two after that. Many people say that could be four or five weeks. It really could be as short as three weeks. If Paul arrived on, say, a Friday and preached the first Sabbath day that first week, then he would have been kicked out really in what's effectively two weeks. And then, say, stayed at Jason's for about a week. It was a very short ministry. and Maybe Paul didn't feel the elders were trained enough that he had left behind. Whatever the case, Paul was deeply concerned. And that concern follows Paul as he moves from town to town. When Paul leaves Berea, he desires to go back, it seems, but he can't, and so he, he is able to send Timothy. You can imagine the questions that he has. Has the church endured persecution? Has it stayed faithful to the gospel? What has the church done? Has it believed the lies of the enemies of the gospel who said that Paul is a charlatan? Has the church stood in faith? Is there any church left there at all? So you can imagine Paul's joy when Timothy returns. In fact, you can imagine Paul's elation as he hears this report that the church has not only survived, but has thrived in the meantime. 
It has grown spiritually, numerically. It has been a a beacon of light in the city of Thessalonica. It has reached out into its own community. But Paul says beyond that, it reached out into the larger uh, region of Macedonia and even beyond that into the neighboring region of Achaia. They have been a missional church. And Paul is excited about it. Paul is excited to hear about the prospects of this church that are said to have loved each other and loved Christ. And so Paul immediately when he heard this news, sat down to write a letter, a pastoral letter, responding to the church. I think they had relayed a number of questions through Timothy that Paul wanted to answer. Now, the text we're going to look at today, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, is a great text. It's coming to some controversy. I have to mention this in case you come across this. I want you uh, not feeling as though you didn't know what was being spoken about. I don't want to spend much time on it because I don't think it's that important. Some controversy for uh, the majority of church history up until the last 50 years, there was one way of thinking of these 12 verses. There was one explanation for what Paul was doing here. The argument was that Paul was offering an apologia, uh, an apology, if you will. That's the word we derive apologetics from. It's It's a defense of the faith. The argument was Paul is making a defense of his ministry, his tactics, his character against Someone who's attacking it. That all changed in 1970 uh, with literary and rhetorical analysis. They revisited this passage. Men like Abraham Malherbe, a a great scholar of 1 Thessalonians, had found some other writings, ancient writings, that had a similar structure and said, oh wait, Paul isn't making a defense here. Paul is using a form of writing that was common in the ancient world that is called a paranesis. It's really saying, follow my example. Now, brothers and sisters, you don't have to wonder where I stand on it. You just have to look at the front of your bulletin and see that today's sermon is entitled Paul's Apology. I stand by the traditional understanding of this passage. Paul is making a defense here. He's explaining, he's arguing that the people who have mischaracterized his ministry and his motives are wrong and the Thessalonian church should know better. But I think if you just think about it as you read this, it has a very defensive tone as Paul explains his actions. It seems somebody's called them into question. And more than that, I think it's a fruitless argument anyway because the idea of a paranesis really is summed up in the apology anyway because what Paul is saying is, I had godly intentions. I was on a godly mission. I desired that you grow in the faith. I desire that you are sanctified that you look more and more like me as I look more and more like Christ. In other words, Paul desired that they would follow his example, the very idea of a paranesis to begin with. The only question then is, is this in one sense an apology, a defense? And I think it is. I believe that Paul is answering critics. He is answering those who have charged that Paul is untrustworthy. He's a charlatan. You want proof of that, they might have argued. Look how he fled town at the, the first sign of trouble. No, no, Paul's one of those guys that comes into town, tries to win your favor, and when it gets tough, he leaves. Notice he hasn't come back. It's been a little while now. Paul has not come back. So, my friends, I think Paul writes an apology in which he says, you know what my motives were, you know what my work was, and you should imitate me in it. With all of that said, let's get to the Word of God. Let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1-12. through 12. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered, 
before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children, so affectionately longing for you. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day that we did not seek to be a burden to any of you. We preached to you the gospel of God. You were witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved, ourselves among you who believe, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Amen. Today, as we look at this great text, I want us to consider three points. First of all, a general defense of Paul's ministry and methods. That's verses 1 through 4. You'll see that. Second of all, a godly mission. A godly mission to bring the gospel to to Macedonia and particularly Thessalonica. And you'll see that in verses 5 through 8. And then lastly, a selfless example that Paul has set for the Thessalonians to follow in verses 9 through 12. Starting first with the idea of a general defense. While we do not know who Paul was specifically defending himself against, there are clues in the text. We should consider them. Verse 14 of this chapter states that they had been suffering at the hands of their own countrymen. Now, there's much made about this. Uh, F.F. Bruce in his commentary says, well, this is clearly Gentiles then. In fact, the comparison is you've suffered just like the Jerusalem church, just like them. You suffered at the hands of your own kinsmen. Well, for Jerusalem, it was at the hands of Jews, so therefore it must be in Macedonia at the hands of Macedonians, meaning Gentiles. But I don't think that fits Paul's actual argument. For instance, one of his primary defenses about his message is that it's not in technical or factual error. You'll see that just by looking in verse 3 where he says, For our exhortation did not come from error. Well, that word in the Greek, plane, means to be technically inaccurate, to be factually in error. How would Gentiles make such an argument? In other words, when Paul is expositing the Old Testament to show out points to Christ, it's going to be the Gentiles who are going to argue that he's not being accurate? No, my friends, that sounds far more like a a Jewish response, doesn't it? It would be the Jewish opposition who would be saying, no, you're misusing our texts. You're misinterpreting the Old Testament. I think you can further see that in Luke's record in Acts. When Paul leaves Thessalonica, he goes to Berea, and in Berea, he says that they were more noble than the Thessalonians. Why? Because they listened fair-mindedly to the word, and they went and searched the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was true. In other words, they gave a fair hearing to Paul. They went and researched to see if Paul was using properly the Old Testament scriptures. 
That would also mean then that the Thessalonian Jews did not do this. They didn't have an open ear to his uh, exposition, and they did not go and check it against the scriptures. It would seem they just said right from the get-go, he's in error. So I think that Paul is making it clear here that the opposition is likely Jews. The Jewish opposition who opposed him in Thessalonica, but also who went to Berea and drove him out of Berea, you'll remember if you read Acts. Paul goes to Berea, he preaches, it's all going well there until the Jewish leaders from Thessalonica come and cause problems there. So this was a group that really desired to cause Paul problems, and it seems that they are here as well. Well, again then, how do you come up with the idea then that they suffered at the hands of their own countrymen? Luke informs us in Acts. In Acts, when the Jewish leaders want to cause a problem for the missional team, what do they do? They go to the marketplace and they stir up the Gentiles. The pagan believers, the, the word that's used there is the, the wicked men, right? The pornea, the, the wicked men of the marketplace. So it's Jewish instigation, but the persecution comes at the hands of pagans or Gentiles. So I think that's a model that fits better with what Paul writes here as well. The opposition seems to be Jewish leadership, but the persecution comes from their own countrymen. Now, why would the Jewish leaders be so out to get Paul? He brought with him the uh, Gentile God-fearers. Well, those were profitable people to have in the synagogue, and so the Jewish leaders were very upset. I'm sure they hoped to, to sell the idea that Paul was a huckster, Paul was a, a charlatan, Paul wasn't trustworthy, he wasn't in it for good motives. So how does Paul defend himself? Well, he starts by defending his arrival. He says in the very first verse, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. Now, that word in the Greek is kinos. It's, it was not empty. It was not void. Well, many people say, well, that must mean it, he's saying it wasn't without effect. But that doesn't make sense because everybody knew that something happened when Paul arrived in town. There was an uproar. When Paul arrived in town, many people from the synagogue sided with Paul. It caused a, a great problem. And that led to a riot in the city. So no one would say that his arrival was void of anything occurring. There was no lack of things happening, but this word seems to refer to purpose. There seems to be some sort of argument that Paul's arrival was inconsequential ultimately. If someone could argue, the greater work occurred after Paul left. When you read what all happened after Paul was kicked out of Thessalonica, the results seem more incredible. They had evangelized all of Macedonia and into Achaia. There had been a great entering, if you will, of the pagan believers into the church. I think many people said, yes, yeah, something amazing is happening, but it has nothing to do with Paul. Paul was just a charlatan. Paul didn't do anything. He came and he tried to con you all. He left. Whatever's happened since then is not a result of him. Paul's response is very clear. The facts don't line up with that argument. Paul would remind them of what was said in chapter 1 when he said, when we preached to you, it was not with words. Of course, he preached with words. But what Paul means is it can't be explained by the words alone. Our preaching was accompanied by power that cannot be explained in Paul's rhetorical skill. The power that was seen when Paul preached the word of God to the Thessalonians was only explained by the power of the word of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit moving amongst the people. Great conviction fell. Great convincing of Christ as the only way unto salvation fell amongst the people who heard the word of God. Great power was seen the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. 
Paul says, don't tell me that our arrival had nothing to do with what God did here. So if Paul defends his arrival, he also defends his status. Paul argues that the mission team are God-chosen, God-entrusted, the gospel given to them. You can see that here in what he says. He makes it very clear that this is the case. He says, but as we have been approved by God, this is verse 4, to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak. How did they get the, the right to carry the word of God into this city? God gave it to them directly. God called them. God chose them. God entrusted them. It's the gospel that they are preaching. And the Thessalonian believers are witness to this. They know the truth. They saw what God did. It cannot be explained as the work of charlatans, but of the power and calling of God. They can see the difference. Is this some huckster who comes in and says some fancy earthly words? No, these were men of God preaching the gospel of God with the power of God unto salvation. That's what happened. And Paul says, you yourselves know it. But Paul says, if we were charlatans, we are poor charlatans because we've suffered in Philippi. You knew that. You knew that we came to you after we had already been spitefully treated and suffered greatly in Philippi, and yet we did not change the message. The mark of a charlatan is adaptability. If one line doesn't work or one story doesn't work or one scheme doesn't work, the charlatan changes it up. Paul says, if we are charlatans, we're poor at it because we went to Philippi and we suffered greatly in Philippi. And yet when we left Philippi and came here, we did the exact same thing. We preached the same message, the same gospel, the same way, in the same synagogues, if you will. And we got the same result. And so what do we do? We left here and we went to Berea. And what did we do there? We preached the same gospel, the same way, in the same power. We are not there to please men. We are here for one and one reason alone, and that is to preach the word of God unto the glory of God. My friends, why else would Paul, Silas, and Timothy be willing to suffer so much? But if Paul defends their arrival and their status, he also defends their message. If there's any question on the message, Paul straightens that out with a triple refutation in verse 3. He says, our exhortation, meaning the message we proclaimed, did not come from error. We looked at that already, the word plane, but it also didn't come from uncleanness. Paul says, you and the Thessalonian church know that's not true. You know my motives. You knew me. You were with me. You knew my only goal was to bring glory to Christ. He says, we also didn't preach in deceit. That is trickery. We were not con men. We were godly men. They're to preach the word of God. So we've seen this general defense. We also want to see this godly mission, our second point. Paul has laid out his general defense of the team's behavior, but now he wants to get into a more specific defense. Whatever the marks of a charlatan are, Paul says that we do not have them. We showed none of them. You can see this in their manner of preaching. You can see this right at the beginning in verse 5. Paul says, for neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know. Why is that important? Because flattering words are a tool in the belt of the charlatan. In fact, they might be his greatest tool. Charlatans, ancient and contemporary, love to flatter men. Now, this can mean that they are flattering you by building you up. They're telling you complimentary things about yourself, but I don't think that's what Paul means here. There's another sense of the charlatan, isn't there, where he never says anything offensive. He never says anything that would step on toes. He never says the hard word. Paul says, that can't describe me. 
I told you what needed to be told. I told you what needed to be heard. I told you regardless of if it would step on your toes. In fact, Paul says elsewhere, doesn't he, that a day is coming when people will heap up for themselves false teachers. Paul says there'll be men who tickle men's ears. They'll scratch itching ears. My friends, our churches are full of this today. All you have to do is turn on the television. The biggest churches in America are churches that say we're not going to say things about sin or death or hell or judgment or wrath. We're not going to say the hard things. We're going to say the things that people want to hear. My friends, the Apostle Paul said, don't call me that kind of preacher. I'm not going to use flattering words. I'm not going to tell you what you want to hear. I'm going to preach the word of God. And I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, the truth is this. If your toes are never stepped on, then the word of God must not be preached fully to you. And I'll tell you why. Because you are not perfect. Are we going to expect the word of God to get in line with what we believe? Or are we going to get in line with what the word of God says? If I never step on your toes, either I'm not preaching everything that's in this word, or you're not listening. I mean that, brothers and sisters. This word calls us to obedience. And as human beings, we struggle with obedience. Paul says, don't ever let it be said that I used flattering words. You know I didn't. I am not a charlatan. I didn't use flattering words. But Paul says, nor did we cloak covetousness. In other words, we didn't have hidden motives. You know our motives. We weren't hiding anything. We weren't coveting after anything that you had. All we coveted was that glory would be brought to Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the other point here in the godly mission. Paul had no desire for self-glory. We didn't come to glory in ourselves or to bring glory to ourselves. We came that God alone would get the glory. Paul says that you know that we didn't seek glory from you or from anyone else. We sought only that Christ would be lifted high. My friends, Paul argues that they never even asserted their apostolic position. You can see that in verse 6. Look at it there. Nor do we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. You want to talk about having the ace up your sleeve? Paul was an apostle. And in one sense, they all were apostles because they were emissaries of the king going out and declaring the gospel. Now think about the amazing twist here. Charlatans will try to claim authority they do not have. Why? To try to use it to get something. Paul says, unlike the charlatans, we had authority and we didn't use it. We had authority and we laid it down. Why would we lay it down? Paul says, because we didn't come as rulers to take advantage of you, but we came gentle like a mother with her child. We came to nurture you and to love you, to invite you in to the kingdom of God on behalf of our great and glorious king, and to have you grow in the faith to which you are called, to have you grow in your sanctification. That's all we desired. So if we've seen this general defense in a godly mission, Brothers and sisters, I want us to see a selfless example because Paul makes the argument in verses 9 through 12 that they set a selfless example for the Thessalonian church. Again, Paul would argue, if we were charlatans, man, we are failures. We are bad at it. Paul says we labored night and day. Why? That we might not be a burden. Understand what he means here. We worked all day to earn a living that we might live in Thessalonica. And then we worked all night as missionaries, proclaiming the gospel, leading you into the life that's found only in Christ and teaching you about how to grow in the faith. We worked and labored day and night. 
And we did it to not be a burden on you because we didn't want to be accused of using you. Is that the policy of a charlatan? To care what people think? No, my friends, their focus was not on patting their pockets. It was on preaching the word of God to the Thessalonians. Paul gives a triple attestation of their character in verse 10. If you're following along, look at it there. Paul says, you are witnesses. You are witnesses, Paul said. And God also. He almost never uses that language, by the way. It talks of his steadfast assurance that what he's saying is right. You are witnesses. And God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. There's a triple attestation there. We were devout, he says. And that word is holy. We were set apart under the work of God. But he also says we were just. Now, You'll know this word in the Greek from our journey through Romans, dikaios. In, in Romans, Paul used it in the sense of being in right standing before God, being declared just or having that right standing. Uh, here he doesn't mean it quite that way. He means in right standing with man. And then lastly, Paul says we are blameless. No one can bring a charge against us, not fairly. There are these unfair charges being brought that we are defending ourselves against. But as you know, we were blameless. Nobody could reasonably bring a charge against us. And I think what Paul wants to say here is, you know this. We lived amongst you. You know we were blameless. We shouldn't have to write these 12 verses in this letter to defend ourselves. You ought to be defending us. You know this is true. But if Paul gives a triple attestation of their character, he also gives a triple description of their activities. Look at verse 11. Paul says, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. Now think about this. He exhorted. This word is uh, parakaleo. means to implore. It, it literally, parakaleo, means to bring alongside or to call alongside, to, to journey with you. The, the picture there is of discipleship. We were imploring you, follow along, come along with me. It's a call of, of discipleship, isn't it? Paul says we comforted you. Then Paul says, we charge you. That's to emphatically bear witness. When you charge someone, you give them something they are to do. But Paul says, none of that was an abuse. All of it in love as a father does this for his own children. You tell me what good father doesn't encourage or implore his children. You tell me what good father doesn't comfort his children. Tell me what good father doesn't charge his children to walk the right path, to do the right things. Paul says, I loved you as a father loves his children. Just as earlier, he said that, A mother nurtures her children. Now here a father loves his children and guides his children and trains his children. Paul says that is what we were doing for you. I want to close by saying I think it's amazing the way this ties in with what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. If you think about it just for a moment, Paul is arguing over and over that that he shouldn't really have to defend himself. He says, you know this, you know that, You, you were there, you witnessed these things, you are our witnesses. It reminds me very much of what happens in 2 Corinthians when the super apostles have been charging that Paul must not really be an apostle and must not really have the favor of God. First of all, he's not that great a speaker. He's not that interesting. He doesn't have power in person. He writes these great letters, but you would hardly believe he's the author of them when he shows up in person. He isn't like the super apostles. He's not rhetorically gifted. He doesn't have a huge following. And unlike them, he's persecuted wherever he goes. What could tell you that a man does not have the favor of God other than the fact that everywhere he goes, he's persecuted, he's jailed, he's beaten? Paul starts this letter of 2 Corinthians by saying, 
I'm not denying it. In fact, I want you to know how bad it has been. We despaired for our very lives. We come to this third chapter, and apparently the, the church had begun to buy the story of the super apostles. And by the way, this is just the argument, isn't it, of the health and wealth preachers today? You know we have the favor of God. We've got the Bentley. We've got the Riverside Mansion. We've got the jet airplane. We've got whatever. We've got the Rolex. You know we've got the favor of God. My friends, the answer to that is the same today as it was then. Paul says no. Paul says, I delight in a sense in the sufferings of Christ because he's invited me and trusted me to walk along with him that I might know him. My friends, it's sad, but it seems like the Corinthian church bought the lie and must in some sense have been questioning Paul. Paul begins chapter 3 by saying, do we begin again to commend ourselves? In other words, do we have to, to vouch for ourselves or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? In other words, do we need someone to vouch for us? When someone went to a church that, that wouldn't know them, they carried a letter from someone in the church they came from to vouch for them? Paul says, do I need amongst you a letter vouching for me from some other place or do I need to take a letter from you that vouches for me? Can I confirm that you will vouch for me? You know how Paul continues that? He says, you are my letter of commendation. I brought the gospel to Corinth. God used me to bring the gospel there. God used me to start the church, set apart elders, appoint them, teach them, train them. I'm the one who has been there laboring in the word. Other men too, called by God. But you, your life in Christ is the evidence of my calling. It's the evidence of my apostleship. You are the letters that you seek. I think Paul's making the same argument here. If I need to defend myself, then how about you all defend me? And if apologia needs to be written, then how about you write it? You were there. You witnessed it all. You know my motives. You know my, my character. You know the work that was done. And you know the power in which it was done. It was not the power of man, but the power of Almighty God. I don't think Paul means it angrily, but I think he's saying, you already know the answer. You defend it. You defend me. You defend the mission. And why should they defend the mission? Because they know what Paul's motive actually was. And as we're closing here, that brings us to that final question. Well, what was it? What was the actual mission? Look at verse 12, Paul tells you. As he said that he is acting like a father, right? Acting like a father, exhorting them, comforting them, and charging them. He says this, what, what was he exhorting them and charging them to do? That you would walk worthy of God who called you into his kingdom and glory. All I ever wanted, Paul says, was for you to enter the kingdom of God and once there recognize that you are called to go beyond just justification. We are thankful for the justification that we have in Christ by the Holy Spirit who transforms us in a moment. But that's not the finish line, brothers and sisters. Paul says, I wanted to see you justified by faith, but then I wanted to see you sanctified. I wanted to see you grow and walk worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom. If God called you into that kingdom, if God calls you into glory, my friends, you need to act and live and walk in a manner that shows that you desire to be worthy of it. Now let me say this. You in yourself will never be worthy of it. We are all unworthy sinners. But we stand in the righteousness of Christ. 
Paul says, recognizing that we stand in Christ's righteousness, let us live in a way that we might desire, even if we can't attain it in ourselves, let us live in a desire, in a way that would show our desire to live worthy of the calling. It's much like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians about running the race as if to win. Those runners at the track, they, they're disciplined. They train hard. They do it that they might win the race. Let us run as if we might win the race. Paul says you can't be worthy of the justification you have through Christ Jesus, but you can strive to live like you desire to be worthy of it. This isn't works righteousness. He's speaking to people who were saved by God's grace. But he says it's altogether fitting that if you recognize what God did for you, that you'll want to live in a way that honors him. My friends, if there's a question I think Paul would have for us in this text today, the people of this church, it would be, are you growing? Are you desiring it? Are you desiring to walk worthy of God who has called you into his kingdom and glory? Yes, recognizing you're never going to reach the point where you are worthy of it. But will you live in a way that shows that you desire that you would live in a worthy manner? That you might bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, are we walking worthy of you? who has called us into your kingdom and glory. Father, we're thankful that you've called us. Thankful that you have called us into your kingdom and glory. If it were not for this grace, we would have no life at all. In Christ's name and for his everlasting glory. Amen.